Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast by Arc Invest. This week, we have a special guest. I'm joined by Arc's research director, Brett Winton. Brett manages the whole research crew here at Arc, and he recently published a piece on Arc's website called "Moore's Law Isn't Dead; It's Wrong." Long live Wright's Law. Brett, this is a provocative piece. Moore's Law is kind of the gospel of the semiconductor industry, and you're saying it's wrong. And there is another law called Wright's Law. It's spelled W-R-I-G-H-T. That's even better. Can you explain, well, first of all, what is Wright's Law? How did you come across it? And why is it better than Moore's Law? Sure. So the idea behind Moore's Law, and I would call it Moore's Law style forecasts, is that the unit cost of a technology declines as a function of time, no matter what, every year or every couple of years, and you pick the unit of time over which it declines. So Gordon Moore famously proclaimed that, hey, we can kind of double the transistor density on a computer chip every two years. And he revised, actually, I think he started out and said every year and then revised it to every two years. And so he refined how frequently he thought you'd be able to do it over time. And the implication of that is that if you double the transistor density on a chip, then you should be able to get twice as much computation for the same cost, or you should be able to pay half as much money and get the same amount of computation every two years. And it's, I would say, the most famous technology cost decline law or, or rule in, in history. And as it turns out, it actually doesn't stand up to, to kind of basic logic where you can imagine that if there was a, a huge recession and the computer industry basically was way over capacity, demand fell off a cliff, at first you would have uh, computer chips selling for extremely cheap because everybody would be wanting to utilize their factories. But then over the medium term, you actually wouldn't have costs decline as quickly because there wouldn't be investment going into new manufacturing techniques to enable you to put more transistors on the same amount of silicon. And so Wright's Law tries to take into account the actual production volume to forecast cost declines. And so Wright wrote his paper I think his first name is Theodore, in actually th three decades before Moore's Law, before Moore made his Moore's Law proclamation. And he was looking at the cost of manufacturing airplanes. And he realized that if you measured the cumulative production of airplanes over time, that there was a consistent cost decline in actually 
multiple factors of production for airplanes. So he looked at the labor cost of producing airplanes, the facilities costs, so the amortized capital required to produce airplanes, the amount of material required, uh, and they all followed a consistent percent cost decline for every cumulative doubling in production, meaning that the thousandth plane might have cost $10,000, and then the 2,000th plane costs actually 15% less than $10,000, and then the 4,000th plane costs 15% less than 15% less of $10,000. And so it turned out this was a robust mechanism by which to, to just guess what a future plane would cost to produce. And then further researchers at the Santa Fe Research Institute said, hey, that's actually, that makes a lot of conceptual sense. Let's test Wright's law versus Moore's law and other cost decline rules against all kinds of technologies. And so not just transistors, but photovoltaic chips and nuclear power plants. And they concluded that actually this rule of cumulative production doublings leading to a cost decline is more generalizable across technologies than a rule of for every amount of time, costs automatically come down a certain amount. So that's the general framework of Wright's Law is that, hey, to understand where technology costs are going to go, you actually don't, the, the right question to ask is how many years away will computers cost this much? It's how much computational volume, how many transistors do we need to sell in order to get costs to that price point that we're looking for? And so the right question is really how much demand can we unleash at that new price point? And that's how you can forecast future prices. So does that make sense? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think if you look at what, what Moore's Law is really saying every two years or every year, it's basically, it's time-based forecasting and it, uh, it, it embeds an assumption that progress will be made during that year. And if no progress is made, the law, the law kind of breaks. Whereas Wright's Law is actually saying, if stuff is being made, then there is progress. So it is less sensitive to timelines um, and actually captures the fundamental nature of uh, what's happening in the factory, whether we're getting more experience building these widgets and whether we're building more of them. Exactly. And, and so actually, I came across it before I came across the paper in the Santa Fe Research Institute. This was a rule of thumb used by utilities analysts who were trying to think about future capex, future capital expenditures for utilities. And in particular, I was looking at carbon dioxide regulation and what the future capital expenditure costs of coal power plants that can capture carbon dioxide off the back end might be, and then what the future capital expenditure per unit energy for nuclear power plants might be if there were a nuclear renaissance, which many believed was going to happen, including me, and it was on track until the combination of the global financial price crisis and Fukushima kind of ended any, any both both clipped off the the escalating electricity demand, but then also, you know, lowered the appetite for new nuclear power. But there, there with nuclear power uh, in the U.S., we hadn't been, built a, a nuclear power plant, a new nuclear power plant in, in many years, and most of them were built in the 1970s. So to understand what the future cost would be, you could clearly see that it's not like that it would automatically be much lower cost to build today 
just because the last one built was in 1970. You actually had to think about what were the kind of design advances that were being made, how much capacity was going to be committed to it, and then as you scaled up, how were prices going to come down? And so using Wright's Law, I had my forecast for unit cost of nuclear power because they didn't get built. Of course, that forecast was wrong. And so that's why it's really production is the, is the key to, at least on a forward basis, figuring out what that future cost is going to be and thinking about what are the drivers of that production and a potential production inflection. That's really interesting. It seems like from right from the start of ARC, Wright's Law has been a central tool that we've been using to make technology forecasts for many things. What are some examples of where we've applied Moore's Wright's Law and how has it fared? So there are a number of examples, and you're right. This is one of the kind of fundamental tools that we use. I think the easiest to understand example, because it's, it's, it's happening right now, is in electric vehicles, where the lithium-ion battery landscape was largely mature 10 years ago. Costs weren't declining. They were declining single-digit percentages per year because we were moving from a form factor with a larger battery from laptops into smartphones as the dominant form factor, which you know have less battery in them. And so though you were getting lots of unit volume increase, the number of kilowatt hours that you were producing was no longer cumulatively doubling rapidly. But if you got the unit price of a battery down to a certain price point, it allowed a company, in this case Tesla, to say, hey, we'll take those batteries and we'll put them into a vehicle. And that vehicle will be cost competitive with similarly high-priced vehicle. So the Model S you know, competes with kind of the BMW 7 Series and the high-end Mercedes. And once Tesla came to market with that, and in some ways they made a bet by investing in, in kind of the the battery production, that they would be able to sell those vehicles in the unit volumes that they did, then that materially increased the, the total battery production. In fact, you know, Tesla's Gigafactory is, I believe it's more than half of the kilowatt hours of battery produced globally at this point. And so as a result, the suddenly uh, an industry that looked mature, where cumulative doublings were actually slowing down, so cost declines were getting smaller and smaller, you weren't getting the same cost decrease each year, suddenly that cost decline turned. And now you know, you're getting cost declines on the order of 15% or more per year. And if you were looking at it from a Moore's Law perspective, it looks like this discontinuous jump down where uh, what, why, how does that make sense? Why did costs suddenly begin to decline again? But if you line it up on a Wright's Law curve, you can see it's very consistent with the production history of lithium-ion batteries, that this cumulative doubling in production happening over a shorter time frame then yields cheaper batteries, which then brings more of the automotive market into a price point where people can buy them. And then our forecast, so on the demand work that we've done, we think that an electric vehicle will become cost competitive with the median sedan in the US by 2021 or 2022. And so, in fact, almost the the majority of the market in the early 20s or early 2020s will be EV rather than internal combustion engine. And so that production volume of batteries, that kilowatt hour production volume, then also brings utility scale energy storage into market, which promises to 
you know, cause another leg of battery cost decline. And so the, the key insight that, that yielded that forecast and, and our electric vehicle forecast has been in the 17 million range by 2022 for almost since we first did the work in 2014, 2015, whereas most forecasters were in the hundreds of thousands of vehicle range over that same time frame. Now they've come up somewhat. The key insight was that we would hit that unit cost where suddenly we unlocked a much bigger market. And so that's the other kind of fundamental tool we use for both understanding markets, but also getting to this cost decline is what does the unit economics look like at that future price? What kind of demand elasticity can you unlock? And so we've applied it to electric vehicles. We've applied it. It works actually in genome sequencing very well. It works in robotics. We've applied it to 3D printing. So anything where you're manufacturing a physical thing, this, is, this law is very applicable. Yeah, that's, you know, when you look at the charts, uh, and I encourage everyone to go to our website, arc-invest.com to, to see this blog and, and the charts. Um, it's very clear if you just plot out the cost of lithium ion batteries uh, over time, it doesn't look very smooth at all. It's a line uh, that's sharp and then, and then plateaus. And then the test, and, and then once, EV, once EVs start consuming batteries, it becomes discontinuous because it does, the time doesn't capture the rapid change in the volume of batteries being produced due to this huge new product category, which consumes a lot of batteries. But if you plot over the number of batteries being produced cumulatively, and cumulative is a key word here because it captures the learning of all the past factories and, and processes. The cost declines are are very predictable, very smooth. It really, it's kind of, it reminds me of the difference between kind of fundamental valuation versus relative valuation. The fundamental one or the, you know, DCF captures the actual underlying relationships, whereas the relative valuation is just a shorthand and masks a lot of the of the core factors that drive the cost decline. Right. And, and also, and similar, I think that's a great analogy because, you know, relative valuations are actually pretty easy to come up with. You just have to you just have to look at one other data point. It's like, well, this company is trading, you know, at a price to sales of ten, and that company's trading at a price to sales of eight. So it becomes very easy. I think part of the reason why people don't do right slot forecasting as much is because it actually takes a lot of time and energy to to figure out the the technological history that's led you to this point. You need that to both understand how many cumulative units have been produced and what is the right rate of learning per cumulative doubling. And so with Moore's Law, it's actually very easy to do a Moore's Law style forecast. Look at last year's price, look at this year's price and say, okay, that's the percent cost decline every year. I'll just extrapolate that forward. And so you know, I, a lot of times to me, it appears that that forecasters, they do that. And then they also say, well, that's too aggressive. So I'm going to be more conservative. So they they tend to be more conservative than you would do with a simple Moore's law style forecast with the technologies that we're interested in. You know, we're interested in them in part because when you do this work, you say, oh, man, people are missing it. They don't understand what the likely unit price is going to be. And so there's a lot of inefficiency based into the expectations of what this market is going to look like over five years. You also mentioned demand as a key input to this model because you you have to, to, to produce that much implies it has to be consumed. Now, how do we forecast if there's that elasticity of demand, whether it's for cars or, or solar cells? 
It's tricky. So the basic work we do is we say, at this unit price, what is the addressable market going to be? So for example, with cars, that's relatively easy. You can say, this is how much of the cost budget of a car is devoted to the drivetrain. And so then this is the sticker price you could charge at a reasonable margin for that vehicle. And this is the addressable market for cars at that price point and above. And so then this is what kind of the share that we anticipate EVs taking. Usually we'll use a diffusion curve to then essentially not all of that demand suddenly switches over at once. So there's kind of of that addressable market, the adoption curve kind of blends in the the demand. But a counter example or, or another example is we looked at solar energy very carefully a couple of years ago, and we're not that compelled in part because the unit economics, even with our assumptions for price declines, the unit economics for a rooftop solar product where somebody's, you know, going up on the roof and and attaching the solar cells to the roof and wiring it all up never got to a point we thought where they were actually economically beneficial for the consumer in most markets. There's some where they work. And so it was hard for us to see that technology scaling just because the unit economics didn't pencil, even though we thought there was going to be, you know, so long as subsidies kept up a pretty severe cost decline. So it's, it's all putting yourself forward in that spot and saying, okay, well, what does the buyer look like here? And what is the economic case for why they're going to make the purchase? Okay. That makes sense. Of all the applications of, uh, I think batteries is one great example where um, using rights law has created a very different view of the future, and that's turned out truer by the year. What are you most excited about in terms of the other uh, applications of using rights law to forecast the future of technology? And where do you think people have the greatest misconception today? Well, some other recent work that we've done, and it's actually in our big ideas deck, which was just published and everybody should download, is to apply rights law to genome sequencing. And it's funny because the government produces this cost per genome data series, which is a great data series, and and I love it. And they produce it and they compare it to Moore's law as if that's the right metric by which to measure how quickly this is occurring. And when you compare it to Moore's law, it's really clear that you couldn't use a Moore's law style forecast to come close to the truth. If if you, even if in 2010, you'd been like, I'm going to apply Moore's law to genome sequencing, you would be off by, I believe it's two orders of magnitude today. You, you really would have missed the fact that we were already at a thousand dollar genome. And so, you know, we're very comfortable with an early 2020s genome at between at something below a hundred dollars per genome. And you can see if you do a, a rights law style forecast that the distribution is very tight relative to cumulative genome sequence, the cost decline. And so the, the body of the forecasting work there is to figure out what are clinical volumes for genome sequencing going to look like, right? So far, it's only been a technology that has had at least most of its application within the research space where people are understanding how the, the instruction set of the body kind of guides the body to do things. They're beginning to use it to guide cancer treatments that are specific to the mutations that your cancer has. But just in the past year, Geisinger, which is the biggest health 
I think it has the biggest patient population of any health system in the country, has committed to doing exome sequencing, which is the, the part of your DNA that actually produces proteins for, for all of their patient population. And so cumulative to date, we've in world history, we've sequenced something like 2 million genomes on that order. So you can imagine if we're going to sequence every single adult in the US, you know, hundreds of millions of, of genomes will be sequenced. And if you're going to do it, you know, when you learn that you have cancer in an, on an ongoing basis to uh, learn how that cancer is evolving, you actually can have people end up getting sequenced multiple times over the course of their life. And so kind of that demand inflection, we believe, is going to transform the utility and the basic unit cost of sequencing and getting this information basically out of your body to understand how to treat it and how it impacts complex diseases. What does it mean for, you know, not only your inherited likelihood of getting a disease, but also how methylations or ways in which DNA is expressed are likely to change your expression of disease over time. So it's really neat to me because nobody's presented this as a way by which to think about sequencing cost declines, but it's very clear that it, it is the way to think about sequencing cost declines. And so I'm very excited about the work. That historical analog and, and the way DNA sequencing is becoming mainstream really reminds me of everything that's happened in the uh, electronics and computing industry over the, over the last 100 years. When electronics first became possible and computers were built, I think even the CEO of IBM said he sees a market of maybe for 10 computers. And that's certainly based on the fact that computers were very expensive and only government and military departments could afford to buy them, just like really the state of DNA sequencing machines today, only research facilities can buy them. But as the costs came down, the computers became relevant for every person on every desk, the Microsoft Vision. And now with the kind of mobile vision, it's in everyone at every everyone's pockets. It affected every human being. So this fundamental technology of DNA sequencing right now is basically in the labs. But based on this cost decline work, we're really seeing it actually going to percolate down to every doctor and then eventually every patient. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's the question. It's, it, is, is it going to be something that's so useful that you would have it like in the patient home? I mean, may, probably not, but it's over the course of 15 years. Who am I to say? You know, but I, I do think that getting it to the practitioner level, certainly in every hospital, it seems likely, you know, possibly in your primary care physician's office. And it, it, but, it, but it's definitely hitting a price point where, there's a huge amount of information and data being generated, and that's naturally going to lead to other things being built on top of it, right? And so it's very hard, or I'm, I guess I, I try to be humble about being able to anticipate the ways in which things will be used, but it's very clear to me that we're, we are crossing at least from the research space into the clinical space. So maybe it's the, the analogy to computation is you're going from the you know, computer the size of a building where only kind of governments and research grants could fund them to suddenly enterprises are, are using them and even maybe even extending them into many computers like that are under people's desktops instead of on top of people's desktops. I think that's kind of the right era we're at. 
Okay, that's very exciting. Getting back to kind of Moore's law for a second, in your in your piece, you also say that you know Wright's law is not just better at at you know doing all these things, predicting all these other trends. It's even better than Moore's law at doing at predicting transistors. So what's what's the what's the story there? Yeah, actually, I I argue that Gordon Moore would have been. I mean, for his personal brand, he wouldn't have been better off. But if he wanted to be more accurate, he would have been better off just reading the paper from three decades earlier and saying, hey, that sounds like a good way to understand how costs are going to decline, and then using Wright's methodology to forecast the declining cost in computation. And so if you, if he had, instead of predicting you know, a decline in costs every one year and then every two years, he instead had just looked at the previous year's production and extrapolated it forward, he would have reduced his forecast error by 40% over time. And so people say, so this is perhaps controversial, but people say that, that oh, Moore's law is dead because we're hitting physical scaling limits. What people don't understand, or I didn't understand before doing this work, is that the demand growth for transistors peaked in 2010 and has been in pretty much secular decline all the way to today. And so if you're cutting the number of transistors that are demanded, you're naturally not going to get kind of the, the people making investment decisions, seeing, seeing a compelling reason to, to really push into you know, the next technology node as quickly as possible. And so I think you can argue that it's not that Moore's Law is ending because we've hit a, some kind of physical limits. It's that the finally the demand for at least cpu computation is is falling off we've we've reached the end of of kind of that demand driver and so you mean demand growth right because the absolute demand yes, the absolute number yes. of transistors demand is still growth growing. so mm-hmm. so demand there's 80% year over year growth in 2010 measured over the last business cycle on average and since then now it's dropped below 40% and so that means the, the, the cumulative doublings in transistors is slowing down. And so by Wright's methodology, that means, oh, so you know, you're not going to get the same cost declines year over year. And lo and behold, you're not. I think it is, it's certainly debatable what's the kind of first cause of this. From a process manufacturing perspective, it's certainly just re- regardless of demand, the, the, the engineers working on the process nodes are just having a really, really harder and harder time finding ways of either lithography or, or the whole process of manufacturing has become much more costly. And we, we know that Intel and TSMC, they're both struggling with deep ultraviolet, which is the next wave we need to get to, to, to make the transistor smaller. So you can certainly see also from the manufacturing side that if you can't make it smaller, you can't give it extra density, you can't really make a product to generate demand. So I certainly have a hard time untangling what is the root cause of this, but the physics seems to be quite challenging as well. But I guess that's my point. If they were if they were confident demand were there, they would throw more money at it to figure out the problem, I think. And and what surprised me about the this graph is that growth for transistors it, it's not just recently as kind of Intel has missed its TikTok cycles that transistor demand growth has tailed off. It's, it, it's actually, it preceded that occurring. 
And, you know, you can imagine if, if deep learning and kind of accelerator based computation hadn't kind of hit its inflection and capability, then potentially you would have like a much bigger server cycle driving an Intel's, you know, top line. And so then kind of they would be really gung-ho to invest in the next processor node and to get there, you know, even if they have to spend extra money to get there. And so, you know, I agree that there's, you can, I think you can argue it both ways, but like, I like the simplicity of Wright's Law where it's just, you know, we're not going to get to that price point until we cumulatively double production to get there. Because it captures the fact that if there's economic opportunity there, you know, those decision makers will, they'll throw more resources at it to, to get the market to that spot. You know, that makes sense. Brett's piece is called Moore's Law Isn't Dead, It's Wrong, Long Live Rights Law. I would encourage everyone to read it. It's on the ARC Invest website. And Brett, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Winton Ark, W-I-N-T-O-N-A-R-K. And I just realized we should have titled the piece, Moore's Law Isn't Dead, Right? It's Wrong, Rights Law is Right. <laughs> rights Law is Right. That's definitely yes. the most obvious title. Yes. Well, oh well. Okay, Brett, it was really nice talking. Okay, James, thank you very much. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.